0: Uh, and actually just before the 2014 race was really the first time that I had ever stumbled even upon the concept that you didn't need carbohydrates. Right, I mean I have a degree from A&M. Like what if all the stuff that we learned is wrong? Or like what if there is another way? Uh, I did 190 miles a day on the race last summer. That's, you know, two and a half hours of sleep a night. For me, two hours to two and a half hours a night until the race is over we decided that we were gonna do a different race um, from Oregon to Virginia on road bikes.
1: Welcome back to the Building Better People podcast. This is your host, Charlie Lima. I have Billy Rice on the podcast today. Billy has a ton of knowledge in the area of nutrition and just overall endurance training. You're gonna love hearing his story and you're gonna be totally amazed at what is physically possible. Enjoy.
0: I'm Billy Rice. Uh, by day, I'm the helicopter guy here in town. So back in 2005, I opened the yellow helicopter that was at Coulter Field. And we've been doing aeromedical transports since. Two years ago, we moved it over to the St. Joseph Hospital. It's blue. We work for uh, the hospital system now. And uh, so I'm a flight paramedic by training. Uh, two kids. Um, They've both been here at least a time or two. A lot of people saw Will. He was 13. Um, He'll be back eventually. I've drug my daughter a few times, but I think she's still sore. Uh, (laughs) So that's kind of normal life. Uh, And then in my other life, which I think is probably, uh, to me, is more interesting at a lot of levels, is I coach cyclists all over the world. Uh, Everything from professional, fully salaried cyclists, uh, all the way to, to total amateurs. Um, the unique thing about most of the cyclists that I coach though, is they're they're doing insanely long races. Uh, and we can get into that a bit, but races across Europe or races across the United States in multiple directions. Um, how old are you, Billy? 39.
1: It's been... Kind of like, I mean, we met when you were how old, like at the dome 10 years, no, maybe even longer. You were, you were like 26 years old, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was probably, if you're, I was probably 21, Spring chicken. 22, I don't yeah, know. it was a
0: long time ago. So, it's a long time ago. So,
1: tell me this how'd you come up with the idea to start this business? Because is that normal? Is that something, yeah, that you know, had, had been done before?
0: So, it's a long, yeah, so it's a long story, it's a fun story. Um, so and with a lot of pieces to it, I, I came to college station to go to A&M. Uh, graduated with an exercise physiology degree that I never used. Uh, so, I was flying as a paramedic, which is the best job in the whole world. And, um, you know, ultimately, that's an extremely stressful job, right? Like at multiple levels. And in November of 2011, I saw a movie on Netflix, like no joke. Uh, it was called Ride the Divide. And it was about some mountain bikers that were racing the continental divide uh, from Canada to Mexico. And the credits rolled and i was like i gotta do that didn't even have a bike at the time uh, i had raced some bikes like you know i did the kind of typical mountain bike racing through high school like before i came to a&m but it's flat around here and i didn't really enjoy riding so i hadn't ridden for a long time didn't have a bike bought a bike within the month started riding doing what i thought i was supposed to be doing uh went out i flew to banff in june Uh, of that next year like literally six months later and lined up and raced my bike to Mexico how
1: many miles Uh, is that?
0: 2,745 that year Um, now the premise of that race which is that's the race that kind of made us all kind of quasi undercover famous is that they're completely self-supported so there's no outside assistance nobody handing you a water bottle you're not allowed to take it Um, you're literally it's kind of a gentleman's agreement everybody meets in a parking lot in Banff. Uh, We try not to get caught by the Canadian park police and the first one to Mexico wins uh, in a single stage. So any of your stops, your sleep, your resupply on the bike, like it's all time against you. Um, And it's gotten so competitive now, two years ago, first, second and third place at the end of nearly 2,800 miles was separated by 15 minutes.
1: Wow. That's one flat tire. Okay, so I definitely want to get to that race and that experience, but let's backtrack to Billy growing up. And where did I mean to to bike like that, two thousand plus miles? Like, yeah. where, where does that come from? I mean, were you an athlete? No, and, you know? not
0: at all. I was like the biggest nerd ever, uh, and I still don't even really feel like an athlete, honestly. Um, no, I but I did have a slightly adventurous childhood. Uh, amazing Boy Scout troop. I um, mean, you know, I was getting drugged to man everywhere—Colorado, Wyoming, Grand Canyon, Alaska. You know, as a teenager, and just you know, I guess I kind of came out of that and felt like <clears throat> you could do anything. When I was 18, uh, between my first semester and second semester at a and went to the National Outdoor Leadership School. Uh, and, you know, I think the class I did was 34 days in the Wind River Mountains. We saw two other people the entire time outside of our group. Wow. Um, and just, you know, it's just the world, like, just go do it. Um, and so that kind of adventure spirit really just kind of always existed.
1: Did you work out at all?
0: Yeah, it's sort of through high school. Like, I Hated organized sports. I never enjoyed like any of the normal kind of team sports. Always avoided it. I, I mean, I wasn't good at any of them. I'm 6'4", You know, so everybody thinks I play basketball, but you know, I'm terrible. Like it's just not right. Like it's that's just silly. So no. I did see the Eco Challenge. You remember that show? Yeah. Like yeah. Like I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh. Like those guys were cool. Like I watched every episode. I, like recorded them on VHS. You know, I thought that was cool. And, like, after, like, the third episode, I decided I would work out, and I can remember, like, running around the block, like, one time, and almost dying. <sighs> um, but no, other than that, you know, once I discovered, uh, mountain bikes, and this was, like, the mid-90s, you know, so mountain bikes are not what they are today. Um, but I started racing pretty pretty well, but, you know, those races were short. Uh, you know, those races are, like, 20 or 30 miles, and you just do some loops, and you're done. Um, and it was fun, uh, but it certainly did not um, kind of lead to.
1: Were you doing all that stuff when you were working at the dome? No, not at all. Okay, so you hadn't even got into
0: it. That yeah, yet. no, not at all. I, you know, once I um, started at A and M and just being an exercise physiology major, like you're around people who are working out all the time. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're learning how to work out. To supposedly, all the like everything I think that they taught us was probably wrong. <laughs> but we did it and uh you know so so i always at that point as i kind of got older um started working full-time in a high-stress job i, I kind of enjoyed working out and if you think back to the early days of the dome like it was fun just to be there like everybody mm-hmm. it, it wasn't kind of your stereotypical gem uh, and i would still be there today if it was still that um so you know i, I worked out i enjoyed lifting I guess um, but that was really kind of kind of the end of it and then once I started racing ultra distance bikes and got pretty good at it um, I was really lifting just to kind of supplement the bike on a 3 week bike race my first race I uh, was like 205 pounds when I started 185 when I finished 3 weeks, In three weeks. yeah wow yeah so you have to supplement you know at some level um and and so I always liked lifting but man just seven years of real ultra distance cycling um with multiple records really kind of just it just destroys you on on multiple levels hormonally and you know so so I would lift to kind of like get away and supplement that but man then it just got boring I mean the last year, year and a half just being in a normal gym without the culture, right? Like you just walk in and the air conditioner might work, it might not. Like it's just it didn't really seem like anybody cared, at least at the gym that I was at. And you go in and you bang out, you know, three sets of however many reps and you go to the next right I mean, you know, like the deal and and I mean at I, I mean I took powerlifting classes and normal weightlifting classes and I had to teach aerobics. I don't really know how that helpful that was, but I had to do it. Did you have to do that one? Like it was a I
1: can't envision you six foot four teaching aerobics. Maybe there were
0: football players in my class. Like we just made it a big joke. Like everybody wore afros. Like you had to do it. It was I had to do it to graduate. Um but man it was horrible. And just finally one day like I walked into this particular gym and the air conditioner wasn't working and I was like, this is done. Like I couldn't couldn't take it anymore. And I knew you were running this place, and I was like, "Man, Charlie's having fun." And I, you know, I had watched the CrossFit thing for a long time, um, and it almost seemed like a kinship because even through my coaching practice, like I generate a lot of hate mail because I'm kind of outside. Most of my ideas are just outside, what most people consider normal. And you may or may not know, like CrossFit has a lot of haters. Because I mean, I was, you know, like, I mean, I've been following and uh, I was like, man, a bunch of people hate CrossFit. I bet that's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> and, uh, dude, like it's phenomenal. Like so motivating. And then I got here, I really didn't know anything about it and, uh, start lifting weights. And then I'm like, we're racing. And like, you know, I mean, it just kind of sparked like this whole additional level of motivation and I was totally hooked.
1: Okay. So. Kind of got the overview, so now let's go back and pick some of this apart. So, 2011, you're just sitting around watching Netflix. Just totally
0: couch potato, man. And you
1: see this amazing ride, and you want to do it, so you sign up.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And you you trained, I'm assuming.
0: Well, I mean, for a few months. Right, but I didn't do anything. I I honestly didn't do anything. Pull out of the parking lot and damf into the grizzly country. Like and there's nothing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hundreds. I mean, it's not, I, there, there's not a more rural part of the country. So yeah.
1: So tell me about that experience.
0: Well, two or three days in, I realized I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but I had the backcountry travel experience. I mean, I wasn't in any danger. But I mean, you're riding through uh, forest service roads from the Canadian border to the Mexican border, basically. Um, I mean, I've had more grizzly bear encounters than I can count, and they all seem nice, right? But I mean, like, I know. Like, you just turn the corner, and there's a grizzly, and like... I mean, it's that, right? It's thunderstorms, it's mud, it's running out of food, running out of water. You're just... It's everything. But, you know, a few days in, I realized the leaders had already put, like, 200 miles on me. Just within a few days. Um, But it was like... It was like, you know, but it was, uh, but it started to become fun. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I realized I wasn't doing all that well, and you know, I was like halfway, I was like mid-pack or so, but but it was just fun. So I finished that event, and I was just hooked, like, and I knew it, because there's really like three kinds of racers. There's there's people who want to come out, and they want to do it the one time, and check the box, and then move on to the next thing. Uh, there's people that drop you know, and, and get out there, and they get three or four days in, or a weekend, or mm. whatever, and they realize that is not for them. It's not what they thought it was, and uh, mentally they just they can't keep it together, and they drop. And then there's the me's of the world. They get out there, and then they can't let it go. Like, I was like so, then coming out of the race, I'm like, all right, well, clearly I have to go back.
1: How long did it take you?
0: Uh, that was 25 days uh, and 15 minutes or so. Yeah, we measure in minutes. <laughs> 25 so, days yeah, and
1: 15 minutes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, so, or right wow, around there. I mean, yeah.
1: that just sounds funny for mm-hmm. a race. <laughs> yeah, right well, the course
0: record, which is set wow. by a good friend of mine now, is 13 days, 22 hours, 23 minutes. I think is, is the official. Wow. Record. Yeah. So
1: he. So they made a Netflix documentary about this year, or was it a different year? Or well, did that they was make the a,
0: original movie?
1: Oh, that was the original. Okay. Oh, so you were in in, the original movie. No, no, no. So that
0: movie was back in 2008. That's the one I saw. That's the one you watched. Right. So the next year, I knew I had to race again, but I didn't want to just go race again. And I realized that no one had successfully what we call yo-yoed the route. And the the yo-yo term came from uh, like the through hikers on the Appalachian Trail, where they would go from one international border to the other and back. (laughs) Hmm. And multiple people had attempted it on the Great Divide mountain bike route, but no one had been successful either because of snow or fires, which are the real two ends of the season. Like you've got to leave late enough that the passes aren't snowed over, but early enough that you're not on fire coming back through New Mexico because it it just all burns. Hmm. And uh, so that was 2013 while I did it in 44 days and 12 minutes. Um, by yourself? Yeah, totally by myself, nonstop, forty-four days and whatever. Yeah.
1: How many miles a day were you biking?
0: So that was uh, like 125 mountain biking. Um, which, I mean, at this point in my racing on a mountain bike, I'm doing about 190, 195. On that what's same the race. What's the
1: name of that documentary?
0: Uh, Ride the Divide. Ride the is, Divide. Is that original, and, yeah.
1: And did you film that yourself? No, no, no. no. It was filmed by a good friend of mine Though now.
0: We're yeah. friends. His name is Mike Dion. Because after I did that yo-yo, um, we decided that we were going to do a different race um, from Oregon to Virginia on road bikes. That project got picked up by Mike, and he, who had made the original movie. Um, and so I got a phone call out of the blue one day that they were looking for racers to follow going into this next project. Um, and of course I was like ah, absolutely. And so in June of 14 we all uh, showed up at the Maritime Museum in the parking lot and the you know first one to uh, Fairfax, Virginia wins
1: from Oregon. yeah, from where wow. they found the goonies like the goonies house oh, like wow. right off
0: yeah and so, that, that project is called Inspired to Ride, and it's currently on Netflix uh, and, and, and has been. How'd
1: you end up on that race?
0: Well, so I'm like the rebel in the movie of sorts, so I was doing really well, and four or five days in, coming up on the Idaho-Montana border, um, I, I had really goofy geometry. Like, if you've never met me, I have a 38-inch inseam and a super short torso. And I was sponsored at the time by Marin, but any normal bicycle just doesn't work for me because I need it to be super tall, but not super long. Mm -hmm. And so I totally cracked the carbon bike that I was on, blew the bottom bracket out, and was stuck in Lolo, Montana at some, like, little... Uh, lodge of some kind, you know, so I walk into this lodge, you know, I'm like, look, I'm in this bike raid. like, it's so hard to explain to yeah. people, you know, like, you know, and we have a clause kind of in our rule set that allows for, you know, if, if you have a catastrophic failure, getting replacement parts or whatever, so I had my mountain bike, which was the only thing that was built up at the house, mailed overnight, which is oh. not cheap, <laughs> to Lolo, Montana, and I literally like rebuilt the, the mountain bike at this lodge in, in Montana. And then I rode a mountain bike for a thousand miles uh, to just stay in the race all the way to Salida, Colorado, at which point my, my main mechanic is actually in Salida. And so he had another road bike built up for me at that point. And so I jumped back on it and jumped back into the race. And still after all that, it was like 14th place or so. Um, out of 50 riders.
1: So you still ended up
0: really well. <laughs> yeah, I still did okay because I'm really stubborn.
1: Okay, so I just have to ask, what are you thinking about on these... <laughs> I get that a lot. ...long days and weeks?
0: Yeah, I get that a lot. So nothing, really, nothing and everything. I love it. You, I have the ability at this point to... I mean, once that race starts, you just drop into this meditative state and time is almost meaningless. Uh, I did 190 miles a day on the race last summer. That's you know, two and a half hours of sleep a night for me, two hours to two and a half hours a night until the race is over. So I mean, you're not like doing higher arithmetic out there, but you're definitely not sleeping
1: Are Um, you not sleeping because you don't want to lose time on the? Yeah, that's why. So you're just sleeping. Yeah, you have to find
0: that sweet spot. So I have the ability now to get off the bike twice a day, uh, other than to pee and whatnot. But twice a day, once to sleep and once to to buy groceries at like a gas station. So you're living out of gas stations because a real grocery store, first of all, is just too complicated. Like it's too big. Like you can't when you're that. Right, like you're on day eight, you slept ten hours total, and then you walk into a, a grocery store that has all these choices. Like your brain can't deal with that, um, so you're, you're just living out of gas stations. So,
1: so and, and I, I'm gonna pick apart because I know you're very intelligent, and so I'm gonna. I know you coach athletes, and I want to get to you know the science behind the exercise, science behind what you think, and the nutrition yeah. about what you think, but for the time being right now living out of gas stations what do you order what do you or, or, <laughs> what do I you eat so are, are often, you eating yeah. like the what is it the pizza company <laughs> what is yeah. that one that has pizza well I mean, you yes. are biking 190 miles a day so is right. is is whatever you eat okay
0: and for the most part i actually have some videos on a youtube channel about this topic Uh, I'm really kind of known in the cycling world as the ketosis guy. Like, I don't really eat carbohydrates in normal life. Um, But when you're out there and you're burning 15,000 calories a day, 10 to 15, easy, no matter how you measure, like, that's the number. You don't have to avoid carbohydrates, right? Like, you could eat 600 grams of carbs a day and still be in ketosis. Um, But what I tell athletes, especially those who are trying to do these races in ketosis is just to add as much fat as they possibly can to whatever choices that they're making. So I would never go into a gas station and buy M&Ms and Oreos and Skittles and leave. Um, it's going to be more, I mean, I might buy those things if, if I want M&Ms and whatever, but I'm always going to be adding fat, whether it's sticks of butter, um, you know, half and half milk, if it's cold enough or I'll just drink it there. Um, You know, and then it's like you know, whatever has fat in there. So you know, sometimes it's pizza stuff. Sometimes they have rolls. Sometimes they have. It just kind of depends on the gas station. Man, you
1: probably. I mean, if there's anybody who has learned to appreciate some fine dining at gas stations, it's you. Dude, you do.
0: Yeah, we do. We know, and it's so funny because the racers (laughs) have just have this crazy bond. It's like the CrossFit bond. You know, like you have this bond with these people down there because it's the shared suffering. Right, like that nobody yeah. else can understand, and when you're out there racing, like you have that shared, you know. I may, yeah. I may have only talked to that racer for the thirty seconds before the race started, and then I never see him again. Yeah. Right, because if I've put a hundred miles, but on you know, I'll, I'll what never see them. I'll you, never see that person again. Yeah. Uh, but you know we both what he's ate going the same pizza you, yeah. that was stale from some, you know. Okay, so,
1: hmm. so that was a question, is what you eat. And the next question is, what do you wear? Like, are you wearing the same gear the whole time? Oh, you, totally. So you yeah. don't. You just sweat, it dries. It, you, yeah. And it's probably freezing in some states or some oh, areas. Oh, totally. Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah, yeah. It's everything.
0: Yeah, it's everything from potential frostbite and snow to, man, by the time, you know, in these races, like you get to New Mexico or Kansas on the Trans Am, it's triple-digit heat. So it's everything and you can't like ditch your stuff because it could be freezing again right like you just you have to be prepared for everything if you're competitive in these races there's really kind of like three groups of people when you look at these races and and actually people will have the opportunity to see this here i organize a 500 mile race here that's coming up march 1st uh, and you, all of this still kind of stays true except for the sleep part because the leaders won't sleep for five, you know on that but leaders will not stop. They they won't... I mean, even in a long race, they're going to stop twice a day, once for food and once to sleep. Um, And they won't stop any more than that. By the time you get to what we call the mid-packers, you know, you'll... Those guys will will get some hotel rooms from time to time. They might wash their clothes. Like, they're racing, but they might also visit the bar. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Like, they... (laughs) It, you know, they know they're not going to win, you know, yeah. so they're really kind of having, and they have fun. Uh, the mid-pack group is, it's kind of like the noon class at CrossFit. Uh, <laughs>
1: the mid-pack group. Yeah, like,
0: group. They, they, you know, they're there to suffer, but they awesome. yeah, they're there to have fun too, and then by the time you get to the back, sometimes. The noon
1: class has officially been labeled now. Is it? The,
0: yeah. The... Well, you know, I go to all of them. Like, I don't have a schedule. I don't have, like, a time. So I've really kind of labeled all of the classes at this point. They have their own personalities. Um, And then what, I mean, is when you
1: differentiate between those two groups, is is it as much as saying like the CrossFit Games athletes are like the leaders? Yeah, completely. Yeah, so there's very few of those. Right. So most people fall into the mid-pack group. Most people fall into that casual, like fun. I'm going to... Right. It's an experience.
0: Yeah, because imagine being in a CrossFit workout the last three weeks. Oh, like that, but that's that's the level of mental focus that the leaders have. Mm-hmm. I mean, every decision is is calculated. Uh, there's a sh- the mental component is amazing. We uh, and I work with athletes who are doing these races and try to get them into the mental mindset. But that occurs six months before the race because you have to make the decisions right now for the athlete that's going to be cold, tired, hungry, and grumpy. Like, if you wait until, you know, you're looking at a grizzly bear and it's snowing on you to make a decision, you're just going to take the easy way out. Mm -hmm. And and so these guys really have to work and focus and try to make sure when they're building their race plan or they're choosing their equipment that they're setting their strategy up. So the path of least resistance is always the path that you want the racer to take so
1: you you mentioned that some guys will get or these mid-pack people get hotels which implies that other people don't so what where do people sleep i mean you pull over on the side of the road and yeah that you just totally on the ground yeah just get a couple hours of sleep get up and keep going yeah
0: if you're a leader or or you're kind of in that top kind of elite level group leaders will not go off route ever um you know, to give you an example, when you leave Banff now, if you stay on the route, you're going to go 165 miles with no services, nothing, no, no, nothing, right? At the end of that section at about mile 150, there is a 3,000 foot tall road that is not rideable. So you're going to walk and carry your bike over a a glaciated boulder field for, for 3,000 vertical feet. Wow. mid usually can't do that. So before that climb, uh, they're going to drop four miles off route, go into a town called Elkurd, get food, come four miles back. Well, I mean, that's eight miles and it was a thousand mile descent. So they're gonna have to climb a thousand vertical feet. I mean, how much time does that take? Like a leader is never going to do that. They're not even going to, I mean, I won't, I mean, nothing. So if it's not right there in front of me, like I'm not, it's not on the route. I'm not going to go that way. So when you talk about sleeping in the the year of the race, I talked about where those guys 15 minutes apart for second and third. Yeah. Like every minute counts. Is there huge
1: prizes associated with winning this?
0: You get an awesome selfie. (laughs) There's nothing. There's nothing. No, there's nothing.
1: Wow! No,
0: high five, like, nothing.
1: Is this like an underground yeah, sport? Totally. Yeah, So there's not a lot of, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people, but it's not a lot of pub. I mean, it's...
0: There's not a lot, and it has definitely grown. So when we made the movie Inspired to Ride, there was only like 50 of us. That race now is 200 plus every year, so... Uh, the Tour Divide race, which if you watch that original movie, there was only 12 of them. Man, there's easily 200. So these races have gotten a lot bigger. Several companies have kind of picked up some of these races. Um, but there's a dark side, Like right? Like in, so if you watch the movie, and so I'll just give the spoiler, so you should skip the next minute if you don't want it. But if you watch Inspired to Ride, The guy who won that race is a guy named Mike Hall. He was absolutely the strongest cyclist in the world that nobody knew about. Strongest cyclist in the world. And he set records on everything that he did. So he has the Tour Divide record. He has the Trans Am record. I mean, he was just all over the place and an amazing guy. I have hours of recordings like like this, just of us bantering because you could listen to the guy forever. Like his wisdom was uh, unbelievable. He almost came across as just like a, a homeless bicycle racer, but he was an engineer by training and designed the Rolls-Royce engine that's in the Boeing 777. Like, you wouldn't pick that up from the movie, but that's what he did in real life. And uh, so we had gotten to become pretty good friends. Well, he was in a race across Australia, which was picked up by a commercial company, uh, and then he was he was run over and died. Mm. Uh, and that was, we're coming up on a year. It'll be March 31st of this year. It'll be one year sorry man yeah no it happened I mean we know this like you put racing cyclists going across the country 200 a race like it's inevitable Um, and so these last few years it's been almost one every race wow and there's only 200 so it's like (laughs) yeah like and and people are, are not doing every race yeah I mean, it's not like a series. You can't do that. But it's a dangerous sport. It's totally. Yeah, it's totally a dangerous sport. And you're out there. You're sleep-deprived. Some of these races are on roads. I've really gotten away from riding pavement altogether. All all of my riding is on dirt pretty much at this point. Because I just don't enjoy pavement and arguing with cars all the time. Especially you know, in do Texas. Do you have a
1: light on your bike or something? That oh, you totally. You're blind.
0: They're blind. You know, like, put people into seizures. Yeah. But still, man, like their surf, yeah. Well, so no, the bikes get pretty are pretty amazing. So, it generates its own electricity. I have a little cash battery, so it's charging a battery all the time. In my airplane, my my iPhone's in airplane mode, but in my you know, but I'm playing music the whole time, so. I can charge my phone. I can charge my tail light or whatever I need else I need to charge. And then the headlight, which is brighter than your car headlights, just runs off the hub. I don't have to charge that at all. Wow! Like it generates its own its own power. <laughs>
1: Let's shift into the the nutrition because I think you have a lot of wisdom here that probably a lot of people that are, even who do CrossFit um, who've probably heard of you know getting their body into ketosis and shifting their diet more towards a high-fat diet, and it seems like that's become something really in the last year that I've kind of been uh, hearing more about anyway, and so I would love to kind of pick your brain. So give me a little bit about how you stumbled upon this, when yeah. you stumbled upon it, and what you've learned.
0: Yeah, so the story is pretty simple, and, and, and you know, just stop me or redirect me wherever because I go f- for hours and speak all over the country. I spoke in Denver not long ago, but during the 2014 race, uh, and actually just before the 2014 race was really the first time that I had ever stumbled even upon the concept that you didn't eat carbohydrates, right? I mean, I have a degree from A&M, amazing university. Like they probably spilled out all the same garbage, right? Like you had to like, you burn fat with a carbohydrate fire or something. Do you remember like some, I don't know, there's some saying that they have and, we were all programmed to believe things like your brain requires glucose, and just, just, it, I can mean, just go forever. And I stumbled across a guy who had been doing research on Navy SEALs, and the problem these Navy SEALs were having was that they're having seizures underwater, right? So they go swim underwater on these rebreathing systems; their oxygen gets messed up, and especially their oxygen concentrations get too high. You, you basically put this brain in this real delicate state where your seizure threshold is crazy low. And so just the wrong trigger and these guys are having seizures underwater. So this guy took research from 100 year old pediatric epileptic research where kids that, were, that had epilepsy that were refractory to normal medication or just didn't like the side effects, they would put them on uh, nutritionally ketotic diets um, and they would not have seizures anymore. So this researcher made a, a ketone, um, salt in liquid form. I had tasted this stuff is terrible. Don't get it. And he would make these Navy seals just drink ketones because he believed also that what we had all learned that your brain had to have carbohydrates and these were Navy seals and they're trying to perform and they need sugar and carbs and So he just made them an exogenous ketone they would drink it their blood ketone levels would go up they didn't have seizures like that simple so during that race i really my mind was just kind of going crazy about like i tend to be a little bit of conspiracy theorist but like what if all the stuff that we learned is wrong or like what if there is another way like, even in medicine, like, we know, like, every everything, it, just stuff changes so fast, and studies are so broken and biased, no matter what you look at, like, what if all this stuff was wrong? So I started digging, I started stumbling across athletes who were doing Olympic distance triathlons, like, on three tablespoons of MCT oil. Physiologically impossible if you read the textbook that I have from my exercise physiology class. Like, they say, you can't do that, but here they are, and they're doing it. One thing really kind of led to another and I just decided, man, if, if I had the ability to have unlimited energy, no bonk, and cr- you know just crank power out forever, whether I ate or not, completely changes the dynamic of my bike race. Because then I don't have to worry if the next door is open or not. If it's open, I'll get food. If it's not, I'll just go another hundred miles and I'll get food there. So I did it. Kind of self-experimentation uh, without a whole lot of science, right? Because there weren't really any good people to listen to. Everybody has an opinion. You almost can't talk about it because it's worse than politics or religion. Because once you enter the world of nutrition, people know what worked for them. And if it worked for me, it must work for you. And, and that's where we'll go next. Because and, and that's why most athletes seek me out is because I totally don't believe that. And so as I talk about some of the successes of nutritional ketosis in athletes, I'm also not saying that it's right for everybody. And some people do not genetically have the ability to do it. And we know this now, but even though we know it, you still mainstream American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, most nutritionists in the world are still spewing out kind of this one size fits all approach to nutrition kind of regardless of what an athlete's actual gut biome or genetic makeup is or what their ability is to break down chemicals.
1: Okay, so how do you know if you're a good candidate for that diet?
0: Yeah, so we've ruined some athletes, I'll tell you. Because it's not that you're... you're So, a little bit of physiology. Your brain does not want glucose. Glucose burns it with with a... High rate of inflammation, and antioxidant buildup. It's we use it in the in the standard American diet as and for it's kind a, of it, a
1: listener. Glucose is, is just carbohydrate,
0: just carbohydrates yeah. in its simplest form before it goes into the Krebs cycle, right? If but it burns ugly. Fatty acids, on the other hand, uh, turn into ketones. Your brain will always choose a ketone. And and they didn't know that. And so you go back to the exercise physiology book or your nutrition class at A&M and, you know, they're, you know, I mean, it can show you the quote, all right? Your brain chooses glucose. But it doesn't. And we didn't know that until the Navy SEAL guy was giving Navy SEALs exogenous ketones. And then what he realized is the brain was always choosing ketones. Total 180, opposite of what we had taught people. So... Knowing that, that the brain wanted ketones. Now there are other organs that would really like glucose, the thyroid for one, and we can briefly talk about that. Cause again, I'll go for hours, I apologize, but trying to figure out who to do this to and who not, is a little complicated in the beginning. I mean, I knew I was amazing. My power was going up. I could go hundreds of miles and never eat uh, on the bike race last year. As an example, the 500 mile race here, I did 362 miles without eating. And I won the race. Like I didn't eat, and it kind of becomes a joke uh, once athletes have, have been through this and, and live in nutritional ketosis. The joke is if you are racing and you you know the next the mountain biker next to you reaches for a goo pack, like that's your moment. Like take him because he's not gonna be able to chase you right like he's not
1: he's not getting fueled fast enough right his his energy's right zapped. he's living the he could insulin he's the fittest
0: guy in the world yeah but. he's living the insulin curve right and so if he's feeling the need to suck down a goo pack his insulin's on uh, is dropping and his body will to protect itself you're going to lose power for a bit and and the ketotic athlete's not they'll just burn some more fat and turn it up and keep going super long story short some people respond well and some don't we used to say and i used to to tell athletes like just give up your carbs like just just do it do cold turkey jump in you might have the whole keto flu thing you might not which is just kind of like feeling terrible for a while and three four five six weeks later I typically would, you know, I would get text messages from athletes, you know, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then at some point, a few weeks down the road, it's like, oh my God, I just wrote 100 miles, I set a personal record. It's unbelievable because it's like a switch. And you have to remember that you're asking your, your body to do things that most Americans have never done before. Okay, so let's break down
1: what ketosis is because I think that people sometimes say I'm on a low-carb diet. Sure. And they think or they, they just don't know. And right, so right, right, so help... Uh, and, and I would so say it gets great but I can't. Try to do this
0: in your most yeah, 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 uh, yeah. No, I get it. I get mind-friendly it. way. All right, so there's definitely a spectrum here, right? So we'll just start with the standard American diet, right, which is recommended by every government agency in the world. Oh, and the people that make Lipitor, which is the highest grossing medication in the history of mankind at fifteen billion dollars. I'm not just saying to follow the money, but you should follow the money when people are making recommendations. Uh, and I don't sell Lipitor. So the standard American diet, you know, which they call balanced, if you can't see my quotes, balanced means eat a whole bunch of stuff that's probably not that great for you. Um, but you're, you're talking, you know, easily 50% or more carbohydrates, mostly from grains and I mean, you know, frosted flakes, I mean, the government says frosted flakes are healthier than avocados. It's on the glycemic index chart, right? i don't make this stuff up, but that's what they say. So you're talking about lots of carbohydrates, talking about a little bit of protein, and then of course, limit your fat. Um, They've been saying this since Eisenhower had a heart attack in the 1950s. Um, Those recommendations came out of a study that was called the Seven Countries Study, where they linked cholesterol to heart disease, and they linked fatty acid to, or, 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 you know, any, your, basically your dietary fat to increase blood cholesterol, even though the fat you eat doesn't turn into cholesterol in your blood, it requires the liver and a whole bunch of things that they kind of left out in the description, but they used the study and they showed seven countries and that basically the higher your blood cholesterol linked to the higher fat intake was linked to cardiovascular disease. And you have to understand in medicine, and I've been living in medicine my whole career, you can make a study say whatever you want it to say. And they wanted it to say that fat was bad and sugar was good and, and the sugar industry made a lot of money. The problem with that particular study is that there were 22 countries in the original assessment, but they published seven, right? Major problem, there was no correlation between cholesterol and our disease, but, but they said there was. And so you can go pull the stuff, and I can send you links to that or whatever. But there was no correlation uh, between those. And Eisenhower, being the most popular individual in the country at the time, he had just won World War II. Man, they used his case and and jumped on that and convinced the entire world to go low carb, right? So I mean, to go high carb, low fat, and we now have the biggest obesity epidemic ever. It didn't work. So. On the other end of the spectrum is what we would consider nutritional ketosis, where an individual is eating or consuming carbohydrates at such a low level that their body is forced to do two things. The first is pull their own fat stores for energy, which is not as simple as it sounds. And if you go to my YouTube channel, I have a whole... Description on brown fat and white fat and how some people can pull fat stores really fast and some can't. But you have to pull fat for for energy to make ketones. Um, and then you have to have the ability to use those ketones for energy, right? I mean, your brain has to have like the receptors to use them. And when you look at little, you know, we took biochemistry and you look at the Krebs cycle, I mean, it's just, it seems so simple, right? Because it's just on the diagram. But you're asking your body to use enzymes that it's never used before because you've been living in a glucose oriented state your whole life. So most people don't have them. That's why it takes weeks and weeks for people to be able to do those two things when their carbohydrates are at that level, which for most people on a normal, like two to 3000 calorie a day kind of diet tends to be around 50 grams of carbs or less it's pretty low I mean what's a tortilla like 30 40 maybe right so it's pretty low that's what most people take at least in the beginning at least in like the first year of living in nutritional ketosis you gotta stay around that like 50 gram mark or less uh, if you want to actually be in ketosis
1: now is there a difference because some people say net carbs as opposed to carbs
0: I think so I definitely think so um yeah, I think you know when you're looking at carbohydrates that are locked in fiber, if they truly are, most of those don't affect people. So but if you have asparagus
1: with eight but five grams of fiber, then you would just classify it as like three. Okay,
0: so this is this now we're really gonna go we're gonna go really far. And so I'm gonna say for most people, the numbers don't matter. Perfect. And the reason is because and, and when people are new at this, I give them numbers, but I hate to because they get so wrapped up in it. So if you and I right now are given the exact same number of carbohydrates in a bowl and we eat those, so you eat a hundred grams, I eat a hundred grams and then you check your blood sugar in 30 minutes. And I check my blood sugar in 30 minutes. Do you, do you think the blood sugars are going to be the same? No. Right. They're totally not. Our hormonal response to the food that we just ate dictates what happens. Well, we ignore this, right? But the farmers have known this forever. I gave a talk at a cycling conference in Denver, um, I don't know, six months ago. And I just copied like the Farmers Association's website. I mean, it was like on the front page that talks about estrogen therapy. And if you just give the cow estrogen... That you can feed the cow 30% less calories and get the same cow, like in the end. Well, of course a farmer wants to do this because that's 30% cost savings on their, on their feed for the cow. So, you, so it gets really complicated real fast, which is why I never give kind of standard diet advice to most people. Yeah, in, in you see it, you know, I can look just even downstairs at the gym, you know, and I, and I don't say anything ever, I, and I won't. So don't ask me to, um, but I can look at people and I can be like, you have an inflammatory response to carbs. Like you, like I can, I can totally pick out how people eat or if they don't sleep or if they're pro estrogenic or if their testosterone is low. Like I've been doing this long enough and been doing enough testing. But I can really kind of look at people without ever really testing and be like, man, I could probably fix you. It'd be no different than me walking into CrossFit and you seeing me with a bar over my head trying to do overhead squats and you'd be (laughs) like, I need more insurance. So give me what you do for your diet so people can get an
1: actual understanding of what it looks like for you.
0: Yeah. So this is, again, this is only for Billy Rice. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling anyone to do this and the reason is because I'm just not going to unless I test you and I can talk about some of the testing that I do with, with my athletes and it transforms them. Um, but my day, t- my typical day, uh, is coffee in the morning until 11 or 12. If you see me at the CrossFit gym before noon, I have not eaten that day. Uh, typically, uh, I don't eat in the morning and I limit, usually limit my eating windows about eight hours a day or so. I, though, I normally eat right before I go to bed because I sleep better. um, As far as what I eat, I tell my athletes, as far as a calorie number, and most people in general, I firmly believe they need to eat as much food as possible that keeps them weight stable. And most people don't know what that is. So I'm like a 5,000 calorie a day kind of guy on a normal day. I was just downstairs eating two fried avocados. I thought Trent was going to like freak out, but I mean, I don't know. What is that? I mean, that's like 3,000 calories just in a couple of, you know, I mean, they're big and fried and they're amazing. But I have to squeeze a lot of calories in a pretty short period of time. Um, And so lots of fried avocados and fried in MCT. You know your medium-chain triglyceride kind of oils. There's there's a major problem with things like soybean oil and peanut oil and canola oil and the stuff that most restaurants use. And we again go for hours and so hours do and hours. you do that yourself at home? I try, uh, but you know everything is going to kill you at some point. So sometimes you just can't avoid it. So you just kind of tailor your life to what you can control, and then I just don't really get wrapped up on any of the rest of it lots of fatty salads Uh, i try to make them as dark and green as possible um but again i can't even tell everybody to do that i have athletes who can't eat broccoli i mean have you ever seen a diet plan that says don't eat broccoli but when i test athletes i've got athletes that have inflammatory reactions to broccoli but then they don't have any inflammatory reactions to dairy or peanuts which i mean you look at any paleo plan and they're like you know avoid your lectins and avoid your dairy at all costs because you'll die or whatever it is that they say general guidelines um, but we can actually at, at this stage of modern medicine we can actually you know, figure out who's responding to what and who has inflammatory reactions to what I so mean, would you not- call
1: what you're doing a form of intermittent fasting
0: yeah I think by any definition those people would say that Um, and then the other piece, you know, we were kind of talking about ketosis versus low carb. I would most days tell you that I'm probably low carb. I can go in and out of ketosis like fast. One of the smartest guys on nutritional ketosis uh, would tell people, he was actually a neurosurgeon. He was a 400 pound neurosurgeon. He did it for weight loss and, and he knew he understood, um, these oxidative pathways and he told people it took 36 months to, to fully take advantage of nutritional ketosis. 36 months, three years, right? Um, and I get it now because I don't think it takes 36 months for most people to go into ketosis. I think they get like 80% of the benefit in eight or 12 weeks. But now that I've done this for so many years, when I was at the cycling conference in Denver, I drank a pint of beer. It was at a brewery. So I drank a beer in the evening. And of course, everybody freaks out cause oh my God, you know, the keto guy is drinking beer, but I had a breathalyzer, a ketone breathalyzer, which is the only thing that works for measuring ketones that are blood. The urine strips don't work. You can go to my YouTube channel. And that morning, right before my lecture, I mean, I was blowing ketones. I was like, I'm in ketosis. I drank beer last night. I'm in ketosis today because most people just don't understand. And I'm not going to give up like if my kid bakes a cake, I'm going to eat that because I can. Like I've done the work necessary to get there. And so I'd say my normal day probably hovers around 100 grams of carbs, which anybody is going to say is low carb and probably not ketotic on a. You know, i mean, cake day is probably 150, but then the next day I might be at 50 and I'm back in ketosis. The smartest book that I've ever seen that was really written for the masses on this subject actually just came out. It's Mark Sisson, who's the primal guy, uh, and he wrote, you know, and he was never pro-ketosis, never, until he did it. And of course now he is, because he's seen the benefits, and he uh, so he wrote a book called Keto Reset, and he, uh, takes people kind of on a step plan to get there, uh, you know, no more cold turkey. Like he, he kind of, he wants to know if people are actually hormonally able to live in ketosis and to be healthy in ketosis. And he's kind of experimenting where I have actually taken it almost a, a whole step further in the way that I test my athletes. Because I tend now, I run on any athlete that wants coaching services from from me. I I run kind of four tests on everybody. Um, I partner with a urology group out of Austin, and we do a I think a seventy six marker lab panel. Right, so like you go to your doc and they do, you know, your cholesterol, which isn't really measured; it's calculated. Like it's a fake test and then they might do a complete blood count and then you're good. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm, my energy is low. So they're like, well, we'll test your thyroid and they run one marker, your TSH, which is useless. Like I don't even use that one. And they tell you you're good, but you're, you're not good. So we do a, a, a massive blood workup on people and pick up inflammatory markers on Everything from dogs, food, environment, mold, plus full thyroid, full hormones, full blood chemistry. And that's just part of the picture. We can take it a step further in people. And there's a test now that I'm running it on my kids. Uh, It's called the organic acid test. So you remember the Krebs cycle from school, right? Mm -hmm. We now have a test. Your physician could order it. That measures every metabolite and every intermediate of the Krebs cycle. All three phases. Can you take a fatty acid and break it down and turn it into pyruvite? It will tell you. It, every, every single step. You know, like this stuff exists, yet when you go to the doctor and you're like, I don't feel good, or I, you know, I don't my energy's low. Or you're a female and you've put on weight your whole life and you can't lose weight and you go in and you're like, well, I think my thyroid's messed up. And they're like, no, your TSH, your TSH is good. You're, you're totally fine. But with an organic acids test, man, if they have anxiety and I run a test and I, and I, and I can see that they're basically building byproducts in their liver that they can't get rid of. Well, of course they're anxious. Like they're having an inflammation reaction and we can fix that. And it, and it might be with supplementation, it might be with a diet change, it might be removing toxins from the environment that they're in. But you can tell immediately what the problem is. So tell me, because I know you have a lot of content out
1: there. You mentioned your YouTube channel a lot. So what is that YouTube channel?
0: Yeah, it's, um, I wish it was shorter, but it's not shorter. Um, it's in, Invictus Ultra Distance Coaching. And we can link it's, it on Yeah, the Yeah, we can link it on there. And I'll make a lot more. Um, so this, because... you know,
1: this honestly is a lot of information. I man. warned but, you. But, you know, it's okay. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. And, and just kind of as we're wrapping up, you know, I, I ask every person this question on the podcast. Um, and I thank you for sharing everything because I know that, I mean, this is so cool that you started here and now, like, look where you are today. It's crazy. And how much you're... Absolutely passionate about
0: this. Hey, and I did handstands the other day. <laughs> for we, like 30 seconds we, at a time, man. Didn't I, like, I didn't even fall over.
1: your CrossFit journey, but... Um, it's bad. <laughs> if
0: I'm doing handstands, you should not be anywhere close to me. No, man, that's great. But, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I love that you're here, but you know, we, we believe
1: that you working out makes you a better version of you. And <clears throat> Billy, you've been working out for a long time, so I think you've believed that the whole oh, time. Oh, totally. But what... What specifically um, does that mean to you? How do you become a better version of you when you're exercising?
0: You know, the entire journey of exercise for me is completely mental. It is finding out if I can control my own reaction to the stress that I've chosen. Like, uh, and to put that in perspective, like, just think about driving to work, right? Like, somebody cuts you off in a car because they're having a bad day or you accidentally cut somebody else off and then they have this crazy violent reaction. And we see that everywhere um, where people just have these crazy, almost non-realistic, broken reactions to the environment around them. And to me, to put myself in what I would really consider an austere environment, which is the workout, right? I mean, because burpees aren't fun really but there's something about it that keeps us coming back and being able to put myself into that environment over and over and over again and kind of test my own mental fortitude over and over and over again to see if I could do it better the next time or dig deeper the next time or go someplace in my brain that I've never been before totally brings me back every time Um, and think about it CrossFit, really, like I get the whole cult thing now like Because people are so, no matter where you are In your fitness journey or CrossFit journey or whatever I mean, I was doing overhead squats next to some guy named TJ You know that guy? Oh yeah Yeah, I had the bar and couldn't even finish the workout Like, because I didn't know I had like a shoulder thing I've lived on a bike for seven years Like my chest doesn't do that He had more weight than me <laughs> Right, but no matter where you are like everybody's identifying weaknesses and everybody's at some mental place in their brain where they're trying to figure out how to get to the next level.
1: Thank you for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Building Better People podcast where you will hear more stories of individuals being positively impacted by living a healthy lifestyle.